Amen. Please take your seats. It's great to see you here tonight. You made it out in the cold weather. You must love God a lot. I know that you do. I know that you do. Um, just to f- let you know a little bit about Robert Sladen, because Robert's is coming back. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'll be ministering next Sunday evening, but then Roberts will be back the Sunday evening after. And uh, I'll let him tell you how things are going in America, but uh, just to say that things are looking good with his mother's health. So that's looking good. That's the main reason. Just in case you're wondering where someone said to me, where's Roberts? And I thought, okay, it's important that you know that he's been um, having extended times in America with his mother's health and... Uh, as I said, it's, she's, she's on the mend. Things are looking good. She probably doesn't need to have an operation. So we just keep on praying. But he'll be back with us joining uh, with me on these Sunday evenings on a week on Sunday. So I'm next Sunday evening. Then it'd be great to have Roberts back in the Bible school and everything. He's, he's got, not only is he, will he be back as principal of the Bible school doing Sunday evenings alongside me, but also he's going to be doing one of the next evening uh, diploma courses on Thursday evenings. He's going to be doing God's generals on Thursday evenings. So it's going to be lots of fun. <laughs> Some of you are ooing and ahhing. That's really good. So that's excellent. Yeah. Well, tonight I'm going to bring the word before the ministry today because I've got something on my heart that I want to share with you. You know, the revival service is about preaching the gospel, pure, pure gospel. And we always make an opportunity for people on these evenings to come to the Lord. That's why it's great to bring visitors. It's also about moving in the gifts of the Spirit as the Holy Spirit leads and healings and demonstration of the power of the gospel. And sometimes we'll do that up here on make time and up here on the platform. We'll, we'll bring people up as the Spirit directs us with illness and then we'll pray for them. And many times we see healings and or at least significant changes right there and then don't we as people testify other times we bring our trained uh, ministry team here at the front and we open up the floor so that people can be prayed for 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 various things and um, I want tonight to really to speak a little bit about the purity of the gospel and uh, what the gospel is um, sometimes we can think that we know the gospel and we don't. And in the church today, in the Western church, the gospel is under attack. Uh, its bright light is being clouded by confusion about what the gospel is and what the gospel isn't, what, who Jesus has come to save and what happens if you're not saved. So tonight I'm going to bring a message to you t- tonight. It's called Just and the Justifier. God is just and the justifier. I want to speak about the two aspects of God, the love of God, but also the wrath and holiness of God, and how those two things are related, because I have found so many people, pastors and preachers, don't have a clue about what I'm about to bring to you tonight. So if I could have the slide up behind me, uh, that I would appreciate that. Please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Can I have the picture up behind me now, please? Um, We're ready for it. Thank you. In this passage, which I want to unpackage, we see two themes. We see the justice of God and the wrath of God, but we also see the love of God and the grace of God. We see in verse 23 that all have sinned and fallen short of, of the glory of God. Everyone is a candidate 
for God's justice. We've all sinned. We all deserve punishment. We all deserve the wrath of God. But we see that God, by his grace, deals with this situation and he does it through his son. It says that Jesus Christ, which God displayed publicly as a propitiation. Now, some of your versions might not have that word propitiation. And there's a reason they didn't translate it. It's because they don't like the word. But I'm, and and you'll, I'll explain why later. I'm going to come back to that word propitiation. And then we see this wonderful phrase. That he, God, would be just and the justifier. This is amazing. So in other words, we we see a picture of God who's going to judge sin. But also we see a picture of God, not just just, but the justifier. He is going to deal with the problem as judge, but he's also going to help those that are in the problem as justifier. Now, what does it mean to justify? In the Romans, we we see this phrase, being justified. Well, the easiest way to remember what justified means means this. I always put it like this, justified. It's just as if I'd never sinned. That's the best way. When God declares you not guilty of all charges, not guilty of sin, you are justified and it's just as if I'd never sinned. Amen? So he is just and the justifier. He is the judge and he's going to deal with sin. He's not going to let sin go. It matters. So as judge, he will judge sin. But at the same time, he's going to be the one that saves. He's the judge of sin, but he's the savior of sin. Now, these two aspects of God, just and justifier, just and justice and love, wrath and mercy... There's a lot of confusion about this. And this is why the slide behind me, I've got this picture of the cross and we've got love and justice. And some Christians are very much focused on the wrath of God, the justice of God. You know, they used to walk up and down with big placards saying the end is nigh. And you're going to be judged in your, in, in your sins. And, and these are the sort of people that, that march around with, uh, you know, uh, picketing and uh, saying, you know, with, with signs from Leviticus talking about homosexuals being destroyed because of sin. You know what I'm saying about it? They, they talk about the wrath. They talk about judgment. And it's like sometimes you can hear preachers and that's all they ever do. Talk about God's judgment, talk about God's wrath, and um, just banging on about, you're going to be judged, you better watch it, God is out to get you, God hates sin, God is holy, God is wrathful, he's pouring out his wrath, it's being revealed, and you have these people on this one side, don't you? Have you ever heard anyone like that? And th- but then on the other side, you have people who are the exact opposite, still Christians, but the exact opposite. They talk about God's love all the time. God's mercy all the time. God's grace all the time. And uh, they talk about the fact, you know what? In the end, God loves everybody so much. You know, he's not going to let everybody stay in hell. Every go- everybody's going to be saved in the end because God loves people so much. You know, even, even if they're not Christians, God loves them so much. God is love that in the end... Everybody is going to be saved. After all, I, I, I could never be happy in a heaven where I knew people were in hell. And what kind of loving God would put people in hell? I love people. I would never put them in hell. You, you ever heard people like that? The grace, the love. And so you can get people on extremes. One emphasizing one side of God as if it's his only side, the wrath of God, the judgment of God, the justice of God. And then others that talk about the so-called love and grace and mercy of God as if that's all to do with him. And people find it hard to bring the two together. Not that those two extremes should be brought together because they're both wrong. But people find it hard to understand how God's justice, because he is just, And his wrath, because he does have wrath, and his judgment, how does that relate to his love, his mercy, and his grace? 
And a mature Christian will understand both sides of God. I mean, God is more than just two sides. But will have a healthy understanding of the God of justice and wrath, who is also the God of grace and mercy. And I want to help you so that you don't end up on any of those extremes, but you have a balance which the gospel actually depends on. Now, the first thing I want to do is establish the justice and wrath of God and the love of God. Because some people, as I've said, don't, do not believe that there's such a thing as the wrath of God. And when, you go, and, and, and when you go to the Old Testament, you know, sometimes you do see a lot of the wrath of God, don't you? I mean, have you ever struggled with the Old Testament and some of the things that God does? Or have you ever had someone who's not a Christian... Start saying, I can't believe in your God. And start telling you all the stuff that he used to do in the Old Testament. Have you ever had that? You know, oh, oh, your God wants to execute homosexuals. Your God, if someone falls into sexual sin or adultery, he wants them stoned. That's your God. Your God tells his people to destroy a city in the Old Testament. And when they don't kill the women and children, your God gets angry. Have you heard that type of stuff? And, and they say, your God, wrathful, hateful, angry in the Old Testament... And, and many Christians don't just stand there. I've seen that. They just stand there and don't know what to do. They say, well, what about Jesus? Some Christians almost deny that Old Testament and say, oh, well, it's different now. It's the New Testament. And so sometimes Christian, Christians almost present God as if there's an Old Testament God and a New Testament God. And we're embarrassed about the Old Testament God. But thank God for the New Testament God in Jesus because he's nicer than the Old Testament God. But God is God. And so in the Old Testament, not right, I mean, it's grace and mercy and love. I'm coming to that in a minute. But in the Old Testament, there is a revelation of the wrath of God, the justice of God, the anger of God, and the judgment of God. I mean, have you ever read the prophets? I mean, the prophets do, do speak about the heart of God. I'm coming to that, so just hold off there for a moment. But they speak about judgment. They speak about God's wrath, God's judgment in his own people, and also God's judgment across the world. They speak about that. We do have the law that's holy, the law that was given to Moses. And in those laws, there are very sharp judgments, aren't there? You can't get away from them. They are there. I mean, some of those things in the law, you, you would never have today. Last thing I would do is put adulterers to death. I wouldn't put homosexuals to death. Would you? Okay, well, how are we going to deal with the law in the Old Testament that said that that was the penalty? And how are we going to deal with the God that wrote the law? Can you see how this is important? And um, in the Old Testament, you see, we see what we call the wrath of God. Now, God is holy. What does the word holy mean? It means separated. It means consecrated, separated. It means different. It means exalted. God is exalted and holy. And God's holiness means that he, he hates sin. He hates sin. God's reaction to sin is hatred to sin. Judgment to sin. In fact, God's reaction is wrath and judgment on sin because of his holiness. And sometimes it's hard for us to even grasp how holy God is. Do you know why? Because we have been born sinners. David said, I was sinful in my mother's womb. Do you know, you don't, when you were born and you grew up, you didn't become a sinner one day when you did your first sin. Do you know that? I'm five years old and I've sinned consciously for the first time. I've now become a sinner. I need Jesus. No, you, you didn't become a sinner because you sinned once. You sinned because by nature you were born a sinner. That is your spiritual nature. When Adam and Eve fell, they took the whole of their offspring with them. We all fell in Adam and Eve. Sin is a spiritual hereditary disease. 
You were born with a sin nature, and you were born in a sinful world. It, has anybody noticed yet that the world's fallen? Have you noticed that it's not all it could be? Have you noticed that if you were creating the world, you wouldn't create it like it is today, would you? If you created the world, would you put sickness in it? Would you put famine in it? No, you wouldn't do, would you put war in it? No, neither did God. All that happened because when Adam fell, we plunged the whole world into sin. All right? So God's reaction to sin is holiness. But we find it very hard because we've known, until we met Jesus, we've known nothing but sin. We, we've been brought up with it. It's amazing what you can get used to. Do you know that? It's amazing what you can get used to. It's astonishing what human beings can get used to. I mean, just think about Germany and the Holocaust. You know, the people that were involved in some of the horrendous acts of the Holocausts, some of them were like doctors, nurses, lawyers, teachers, just normal people who, because of that horrendous teaching from Nazism, Step by step, day by day, they got more desensitized to what the sin of anti-Semitism is. That tends to happen, you know, with people that, that aren't saved. They tend to get what the Bible calls hardened. They sin. Sin begets sin. It's like, it's like people that end up in you know, all sorts of bondage to sexual practices or drugs or whatever. It doesn't start like that. But what happens, they get into worse and worse. They become hardened. And all of us, even Christians today, we, have, we, have, we are desensitized to sin. But God isn't. How holy and how pure is your God? How holy, how pure is your God? Because for us... We're so used to a world of sin that little things, little sins, we might just, oh no, never mind, better luck next time. You know what I'm saying? But an infinitely eternal holy God, who by his nature is as pure as pure can be, what do you think that infinitely holy God, what do you think his reaction would be to the smallest sin? If you were to say, oh, I think he'd let it go, then your God isn't holy at all. And one of the tests of our understanding the holiness of God is to think of the little sins that we would pass by and understand that with an infinitely holy God, that tiny sin would be infinitely repulsive to him. Do you understand? And that his reaction to that, we would probably think... That God's reaction to sin was over the top. We would think that. I would think that. Ourselves, being brought up in a sinful environment, being, as I've said, our conscience is seared all in some ways. We're learning what holiness is when we're saved. We're learning what sin is when we're saved. But we would probably think that God's reaction to sin was an overreaction. That his punishment of certain sins was an overpunishment. You know, this is very important, isn't it, in today's society. How, how much punishment should be given for what crime? And in the old Gilbert and Sullivan uh, thing, let the punishment fit the crime. And we have a sense of crime and punishment, don't we? And so when you read in the papers, if someone commits two or three murders and gets out of prison in two or three years... Would you think that was justice? No, because something inside you says that's not right. The punishment did not fit the crime. It means that that, that cheapens the crime. If someone commit two or three murders and they were only in prison for two or three years, we would say that that does not reflect the nature of the crime. It, may, it cheapens the crime. It makes the crime not seem so important. It cheapens the human lives, correct? That's how we would think. But in the old days, in the Victorian days, a starving street kid who was caught stealing a loaf of bread would be sent for a life of hard labor in Australia. Did that punishment fit the crime? 
No, why? Because he was going to die. He just took bread to eat. And, you know, the, so we have an understanding in our lives of, of the punishment fitting the crime. But what we have to realize is that when God sees sin, he has an infinite capacity of responding and reacting to it. And if you can think of God as at his holiest and pure, pure, purest, I'd say double it, treble it, quadruple it. I mean, times it by a million, two million. He's holier than that. You think, well, is he that holy? He's holier. He's purer. One of the things that God's going to do in the next revival is going to give us a clear picture of God's holiness and purity. And when God turns up in his holiness and purity, sin is seen as it really is. You know, when Isaiah, it was like when Isaiah says, you know, I'm unclean and God touches him with the fire. And he's purified. When Peter had a picture of Jesus, his holiness, he said, stay away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. And so we have to acknowledge today that human beings, including ourselves, that we have a low view of sin and a low view of God's holiness. So that sometimes when we look at those laws or we look at what God in the old, does in the Old Testament, I'm being honest, sometimes we look at that and we think, that was a bit harsh, God. What, the children too? It's not going to go down well in the evangelizing. Let's skip quickly to the gospel. I'm a New Testament believer. Some of the stuff he did. Some of the things God did. What is that a picture of? You know, you don't have to run away from the God of the Old Testament because he's your God. And you don't have to run away from the demonstrations of his incredible holiness. You see... Our faith is God-centered. It's not man-centered. It's God-centered. And you know what? We're going to come to grace and mercy in a minute, but we're not there yet. Do you know what? If there was no grace and no mercy, and nobody deserves mercy, do they? Nobody deserves grace. Grace is undeserved. Mercy is undeserved. I don't, have to, I don't have to give you mercy. I don't have to give you grace. If I had to, I would owe you it. And we'd be talking about justice. When it's justice, you always get what you deserve. When you get your pay packet, I know they don't do it like that. But when you get your pay packet, if you're blessed enough to have a job at the end, uh, does your boss come and say, well, here you are. What do you say? Thank you. I'm giving you here you are. Yeah, you must be very grateful for that. You'll go, grateful? I worked for that. I earned that. And if you don't give it to me, it's not just. But grace is when you get a bonus, unless you're a banker, of course. But grace is normally when, when you get a bonus. When someone comes up or someone comes up and does something for you, why did you do that? Because I wanted to bless you. That's grace. Grace is never deserved. But we're not there yet. We're in the holiness of God. And if God gave us all that we deserved, if God looked at the earth without Christ, we're just talking about his holiness. If God looked at the earth and gave us exactly what we deserved, we would all in an instant be destroyed. All of us. If we got what we deserved. And so God does reveal himself. And, you know, you look at the law and you say, well, that's a heavy punishment for this. That's a heavy punishment for that. Do you know what? The law shows us how holy God is. The law, the law shows us what God is like without his mercy. The law shows all, all sin. All sin is worthy of punishment. All sin. Big, small. All sin is worthy of divine punishment. And the consequences of any sin, of any type, small or large in your mind, the consequences are eternal punishment. Now that's another thing that people can't get their heads around. I remember one pastor saying, how can 70 years of sin, in other words, 70 years of be, you know, your normal life, isn't it? How can 70 years of sin... Be punished with eternal torment, conscious in hell, forever and ever un unending. How can 70 years of sin 
Just like we were talking earlier about justice. How can that, 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 wouldn't that be like somebody dropping some litter and being given life in prison? Well, again, how do we address that question? Depends how holy God is. And it depends how offensive that sin is. And God is offended by sin. We're offended that God is offended by sin. We're offended that he's so offended by sin. We think he's over the top. We, we think, you know, just let it go. We think that we're more merciful from God and we'll come to... We're, we're offended that God is offended at sin. That's why people struggle with the Old Testament. God's divine wrath is his righteous anger and punishment that's provoked by sin. The wrath of God. What is the wrath of God? It's his anger. Do you know there is a righteous anger? We often think as anger as a negative emotion. That's because most of us, when we experience anger or when we are angry ourselves, most of the time it's a negative thing that's, that's certainly not holy. But there is a righteous anger, isn't there? Jesus, when he went into his father's prayer house, righteously ang ang angry. And has there ever been a time where you have been really angry about a wrong done? Maybe something that's taken place, a genocide, something in another country. Maybe you've wit witnessed a racist statement or act. And you are angry. And that anger is not wrong. Or somebody has treated you, I mean, not just a little bit badly, but totally off the wall. Or done something. And you are angry. And you say, oh no, I'm angry. It's sin. No, the Bible says, be angry and do not sin. There is an anger that is right and appropriate, okay? We're just used to the anger that's not right and inappropriate. There is an anger. Uh, anger is a positive emotion if, because sometimes it can be challenged into great change for good. So God is angry at sin. If you don't believe me, you could just read the whole New Testament. In fact, Romans chapter 2, the wrath of God is revealed. God takes sin personally. Now, God's wrath or anger is not him just having a bad day. You know, he woke up in a mood. He tried to destroy a few cities. God's wrath and his anger is exactly the perfect manifestation of a righteous, just response to sin. Oh, we need to get the fear of the Lord back in our lives. We need to realize that, you know, yeah, he's your daddy, but he's also the judge Lord of glory, and the wrath of God is revealed, and that's New Testament, not just Old Testament. A good dose of who our daddy is. He's also the judge and father of the universe. And uh, we see this in the Old Testament. We see this even in the New Testament. Um, in uh, John the Baptist, Matthew chapter 3, verse 7. I don't feel the need to go into these scriptures, but Matthew 3, 7. John the Baptist, preparing the way for, the, for, for Jesus' coming, speaks to the Pharisees and said, Who warned you of the coming retribution? Flee from the wrath to come. John knew there was a wrath coming, that there was a day of reckoning coming. And then he said, I baptize you with water that he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And his winnowing fork is ready. And he is going to separate the wheat and the chaff. And the chaff's going to be burnt. There was a strong note in John the Baptist's preaching, wasn't there? Of judgment and wrath is coming. Of course, he misunderstood that Jesus was going to come twice. The first time he came in grace and mercy. But when he comes again... He's coming in holiness, judgment, and wrath. If you don't believe me, read the last book in the New Testament, the book of Revelation. Jesus himself, with all his grace and mercy, I'm coming to that in a minute, in all his grace and mercy, had a strong note of the judgment and wrath of God. I mean, if you want to study the doctrine of hell, where is it found most? In the Gospels. It's almost like the doctrine of eternal punishment. It was like Jesus said, this teaching I need to establish. Why? Because it's so holy, so incredible, so f fearful. 
when he speaks about these things. I mean, it's there in the rest of the New Testament, but Jesus speaks about it again and again and again. And then we have Romans 1, verse 16, which speaks about the gospel, so, much, so, so often quoted, but not in context. A couple of weeks ago, I quoted it in context. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. That's the good news. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And most preachers stop there. But the next verse says for. In other words, the next verse is why the gospel has come. The gospel I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. And then verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. And then it goes in to give you examples. The wrath of God is revealed. The anger of God, the re reaction to God. So we have that on the one side. We could go through the prophets. We could, I could really push this through, but I think you've got the picture. The wrath, judgment of God. Who could stand without the Lord? Nobody. Nobody. Okay? But then we have the other side. 1 John 4 verse 7. God is love. And John is full of this love motif. We see Jesus, the same Jesus who wrote the Mosaic law. The eternal son of God, the same Jesus who wrote the Mosaic law that said that the adulterer must be put to death is the same person that said to the woman caught in adultery, I do not condemn you. The same one, not a different Jesus, not a God of the New Testament. The same God that wrote that law that established his holiness and his view of such sin is now saying to someone caught in that sin, who deserves that punishment, established by the Mosaic law, says, I do not condemn you, go your way, sin no more. The same God who on the cross, as he is being crucified, says, Father, forgive them, they do not know what they're doing. And we're used to preaching the love of God because here at the KT, uh, our theme is grace, isn't it? Mercy, the love of God. But it dawned on me, unless we understand the wrath of God that is revealed, we won't, we won't understand the full power of the gospel. We'll have this idea that, oh, well, that's nice. God's our friend. Jesus is my buddy. He's my friend. He saved me, yeah, but I don't know what from. I mean, probably would, would, it'll all work out anyway. But it's nice to have God around. Instead of realizing... What's going on? And you know, you get people that talk about, you see there, love has conquered wrath. Jesus died, dealt with it, and now God has no more wrath. I've heard preachers say this. God has no more wrath. After the cross, Jesus dealt with wrath, dealt with justice. But we've just read, haven't we, in Romans, the wrath of God has been revealed. We have a gospel because the wrath of God is still flowing. The judgment of God is still flowing. That's why we need the good news. That's why we need, we still need to be delivered from this. And some people forget about the justice and wrath of God. I mean, that there's a well-known book out called Love Wins. That in the end, any wrath or anything like this, any judgment, love will win in the end. But you know what? That's inaccurate. It's not that love wins, it's that God wins. You say, well, isn't that the same thing? No, it's not. You see, listen to me carefully. God is love, but love is not God. You see, God is love, but he's many other things. And yes, I agree that the, the prime mission and, and preaching is that God loves the world. God is love, but you can't turn it around the equation and say love equals God. Because God is bigger than love. God is not defined by love. It's his greatest characteristic. But God is love, but love is not God. God is also holy. God is also 
Not just full of mercy, but full of wrath at the same time. You say, well, where's that? Well, we see um, in the scriptures, Psalm 85 verse 10. You see, you would think that justice and love, wrath and mercy, how could they ever be brought together? How could God be one and the same? Well, Psalm 85 verse 10 says, mercy and truth meet together in him and righteousness and peace kiss each other. Psalm 85.10. Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 2. In wrath, remember mercy. So Habakkuk knew that there was indeed a wrath and judgment of God, but there was also in wrath, remember mercy. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3 and 4 speaks about him being full of wrath and the children of wrath, but being rich in mercy. And here in, in Romans 3.25, we see this word that I said I'd come back to. Whom God displayed, Jesus, publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. What is a propitiation? Well, a propitiation, the word propitiation is one of the most important words in the New Testament, okay? And in some versions of the Bible, the people that trans translated it into English, they don't like this word. And so they, won't, they refuse to translate it. The NIV, in some circumstances, refuses to translate the word propitiation as propitiation. Why? Because they don't like what it means. So they use a different word like atonement, toning. Now, propitiation, what does that mean? Propitiation comes from the word to appease. And so it's linked to the wrath of God. And so the idea is, is that somebody is angry and his anger somehow needs to be satisfied. Now you can see this in many folk religions across the world where they have local demons or local gods and they bring out food sacrifices to the altar. And what they're trying to do is appease the god. And they're concerned if there's a bad harvest in these folk religions, they think that somehow the harvest is bad because God is angry against them. So what do they do? Well, depending on their culture or religion, they will bring gifts and offerings, trying to calm God, the God or the demon's wrath down. Does anybody know anything about any of these in your different cultures? You know that's there. And the offering is not an offering of worship and love and adoration. It's like, quick, give, him a, give some sort of sacrifice to calm the God down. This is known in ancient Greek religions, Roman religions, the idea of calming the angers of the gods so that they won't judge you. All right? Well, we've already said that in the Bible we see that God has wrath and anger. And isn't it interesting? Have you ever noticed those sacrifices in the Old Testament? And it says they made, they made a sacrifice to the Lord and it was a sweet, soothing huh? aroma of fragrance to his nose. So we see in the Old Testament that they make sacrifices and those sacrifices are a sweet aroma. It's like those sacrifices are somehow calming or satisfying the wrath of anger of God. And sometimes those sacrifices can actually turn his anger away, his wrath away. Sometimes their repentance and their sacrifices soothes the wrath of God. Now, you can see why some scholars don't like the word propitiation. Because they think that that is like, that is folk religion. That is, not, that is not up to date. That is not modern. The idea of having to sacrifice to, to, to calm God down. You know, easy God. Like when God said to Moses, I'm going to destroy those people and start all over again with you. And Hey, calm down. Count to ten. Count to ten before you do anything. I know what you like, God. Easy boy, that's right, that's right, take a breath, easy, in, out, Ooh. spare them. Yeah, I got a bit angry there Moses, I'm sorry, I do lose it sometimes. I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah, but what if there's 50 righteous men? What? I haven't thought about that, I'm too angry to think about things like that. Come, right? That's not what it's like, because God's wrath is measured. It is the perfect response. And as I said, sin is personal. It's personal. It's like David when he did his thing with Bathsheba and 
killed her husband, right? Nathan the prophet said, against God you have sinned. Even before they spoke about the other people. It's personal. God, God's anger needs to be satisfied. And his righteous wrath poured out is exactly just and righteous. And the Old Testament and New Testament demonstrates this. But this word propitiation is where we begin to bring love and justice, wrath and grace together. Because Christ is a propitiation. In other words, the sacrifice of Christ satisfied God's justice and satisfied his wrath. And this is where I really want to bring it. I've been talking a bit of doctrine tonight, but I'm going to bring it down in gospel format picture now. Someone says, you know, Bruce, if you were to, to sum up everything to do with God, and, and, and if you were to help me, if I, if I like, I haven't got much time, tell me who God is. What's the most important? How can you describe God to me in two words? I want to know God, and the Bible's big. Where can I find God at his most being God and who he is? Two words, I would say this, Christ crucified. You, you want to know who God is. You want to know about wrath and anger and grace and mercy. Then go to the foot of the cross and see Christ crucified on that. Because you see, we've already said that the beginning of my sermon was just and the justifier. I've spoken about the justice of God just in a small format. I mean, I'm almost, you see, when I speak about the wrath and justice of God, I feel like I'm, I feel constrained about it because it's so not popular today, except in these extremists who don't know anything about mercy and grace, that for many of you, I'm worried that you're not used to the doctrine enough for me to really drive home what wrath justice is. That's why people struggle with eternal hell, because they have no idea of the justice of God. They have no idea what unatoned sin is. And so I only just touched on it tonight, trying to be gentle. Some of you might think, well, it wasn't gentle. Well, believe me, if I was to preach a series on it. But on the cross, we see two things. And we preach the love of God on the cross. And that's true. But we also see the wrath of God. The justice of God. If we're going to define love, we have to understand what is God's definition of love. And we say that God is love, but what is love? What, what does love mean? Well, in 1 John, I want to take you there. I want to show you something that love is def defined by this word, propitiation, the first letter of John. Um. Okay. <clears throat> uh, where am I? I uh, um, 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 following. And look for the word propitiation. 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. There it is. Not love is God. God is love. God is love. Well, what is that? By this the love of God was made manifest in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So in other words, love is defined by the word propitiation. The word that people don't like. The word to do with God's anger, hatred and wrath of sin. God wanting to bring punishment on sin, righteous punishment. And love is linked to that, linked to the word propitiation of dealing with that. 
Propitiation. You see, Jesus, let me bring this into a pictorial form. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if there's any way that this cup can pass, if there's any other way, if I, I, if I don't have to drink it, I don't want to drink it. But Lord, but Father, not my will, but thine be done. What was the cup? It was the cup of God's wrath against sin. That's what it was. And right throughout the Bible, a cup, you can have a cup of blessing, but a cup is often used as drinking the punishment. Jesus, and listen to this, the cup that he was going to drink, and he was going to drink every last drop, it was the cup of the God that I was talking to you about earlier, where the slightest sin is worthy of eternal everlasting punishment. Why? Because he's so holy and pure and because sin is so offensive to God, we just can't imagine. And Jesus said, I will take, I will drink Father. I volunteer to drink the cup of all your wrath, anger, righteousness, punishment against all sin, past, present, and future, I will drink that cup, and I will drink it to the bottom. Isn't that incredible? And you see, the son volunteered, but it was the father who sent the son. Son, will you go? And will you let me pour out the full fury anger and justice against sin on you, God. I wouldn't do that on my son because I love him too much and I don't love you enough. I wouldn't send my son, I've said this before, it's a theme, I wouldn't send my son to die for any of you because I love him too much and I don't love you enough. But God sent his only son to die for you. Because he loves you as much as he loves his son. And his son volunteered. Can you begin to see how mercy and grace is now coming into this act of propitiation? Where Jesus was going to satisfy, okay? Satisfy the wrath and anger. Some, a Bible student asked me this question. I thought it was a good question. He said, why did the crucifixion and everything, why was it so awful? Why was it so, why was it, why was it so terrible? Why, why couldn't Jesus just have like been shot at dawn or something? I mean, if he had to die for our sins, have you ever thought about this? Jesus had to die for our sins. Well, could he have been given a lethal injection? You know, like what the world tries to do when they execute people, give it the easy, uh, lethal injection. He could just stay there quietly. He could say goodbye to his disciples and we could uh, give him a lethal injection and he'd fall asleep. And before he knew it, he'd have died for our sins. Have you ever thought that? Why, why do we see, if you've ever seen The Passion, the 18 version of The Passion by Mel Gibson, which of course is a very, very sanitized expression. Very, very. I mean, the actual crucifixion would have been 10, 15, 20 times more horrific than that. Why was it had to be filled with so much horror? Have you thought that? Why was it a cross he had to die in? Why did he have to be whipped and scourged and go through all these things? I'll tell you why. Because the wrath of God demanded it. Because when God poured out his wrath upon his son that should have been poured out on us, it was with his full fury. And Jesus experienced the full wrath of God in his body, soul, and spirit. That's what you see on the cross. You see God's love and God's wrath in one act. The cross tells you, well, it's a bit of an over-preaching statement, but the cross really tells you all you need to know about God. Because there's a son on the cross who volunteered, who's there by, by volunteering because he loves us. There's a father who asked him to do it. And then there is a father pouring out. You think the judgments in the Old Testament were bad? He's pouring out all of those and more on one individual. He's 
focused on one individual and all the anger, righteous wrath, I mean, of an infinitely holy, pure God against sin is being poured out on his son. You think of the suffering of the son. Has everybody, anybody ever thought of the suffering of the father in doing that? And how he must feel about us to do that. To punish his own son, who was sinless, the Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world. So in the cross, in Christ, we see this horrific, my father, my father, why have you forsaken me? God turned his back on his son as he turns his back on sin. So just and the justifier. And you know what, though? Jesus did it. On the cross, he drank deep. He drank and he drank and he drank and he drank. Because only, you see, only God's son could do it. Only God man could do it. Only the incarnate word made flesh could do it. Because at most, a perfect man could only die and save himself. But Jesus had an infinite capacity to take an infinite punishment. So he drank it and he drank it and he drank it. We could never even begin to understand what was going on. The relationship between the father and son on the cross pouring out the full. And then the moment came when Christ had suffered. Remember, he didn't just die for our sins. He suffered for our sins. There came a moment when Jesus is like, and I'm okay, I'm using poetic license, but Jesus is like, is that it? Is there any more? And it's like the father whispered, you've exhausted my anger, my wrath against sin. No, I have no more anger, wrath, or punishment. You've drank it all, son. And Jesus goes, it is finished. Father, into your hands. Commend your spirit, my spirit. This, how can, you see when we preach the cross, we're missing something. We're just saying Jesus died on the cross for your sins and you're forgiven. Praise the Lord, it's true. But we're missing the transaction. People are forgetting that in that act, wrath and mercy were mingled. It's like you can't separate them. Here in the backdrop behind me, we've got love on the one side, justice on the other. But you can't separate them. I used to say you've got God, it's like it's coin. On one side of the coin, you've got love. On the other side, you've got justice. I realize that even that's not right. They, they are, it's not that God is love on the one side. Love on the one side. Wrath on the other side. He is God. This is who he is. It's mingled. It's all one. He's not this and that. He's God. Full of wrath and full of mercy. Hallelujah. And so on the cross we did that. Now this is why it's important for us to know. Because now if you believe in Jesus, then you have no more wrath on your life. There is no more judgment. John's gospel says if you believe that Christ died and rose again, died for your sins, you have passed from judgment to life. If you are a Christian, if you truly believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and was raised from the dead, you are saved. There is no wrath. Jesus drank every drop. You're saved forever. He's got no more wrath for you. You're a child of mercy. He will never visit you with anger and wrath ever again. You've been saved. But let me tell you something. And again, this is what we forget. Those that reject Christ, let me tell you something. Unatoned sin remains under the judgment and wrath of God of the Old and New Testament. In other words, it's this. If you reject the gospel, then all the wrath that was poured upon Jesus on the cross will come upon your life when you die. And there is not long enough in eternity for you to pay the price that you, of sin that you deserve. There's, there's, not, there's not long enough. Remember the holiness of God? There's not long enough 
10 years, 100 years, a million years. There's, if you reject God's mercy found in Christ, who drank the wrath for you, then you shall drink the wrath. And there is not long enough for that ever to be drunk. You'll be drinking his wrath forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And very few people believe that today. This is why the gospel is the power. This is why our friends and neighbors need the gospel. We need to preach the gospel because the gospel that's not spoken is a powerless gospel. But the gospel is the power of God to save both Jew and Gentile. For the wrath of God is revealed against all those that aren't in Christ. Aren't you glad you're saved? Can't you see that God is love and justice, grace and wrath? It's not one or the other. It's who he is. You can go to the Old Testament and you can be like, whoa, this is heavy, the judgment of God. And not reject it or pretend it's not part of him anymore. But know that, but for Christ, we'd all be judged like that. Oh, praise the Lord. Let's bow our heads in prayer. You're here tonight and you've not given your life to the Lord or you don't know if you had. It's your choice. When Jesus was in Gethsemane, he said, Father, I'll drink this cup. That cup was drunk by Jesus on your behalf. Every sin that you've ever committed and the sinner that you are, Jesus paid the price for it. God remained self-consistent, loving and judging, just and justifier. But you have a choice. It's your choice. And you can say, Jesus, you drunk the cup of wrath for my behalf. I believe in you. And your sins will be forgiven you. And the consequences of your sins will be forgiven you. Or you can say, no, I reject this message. Then I, I have no pleasure in telling you that you are in a precarious state. And if you don't, if you, and I warn you, that without Christ, you will drink the cup of his wrath and judgment forever. Because outside Christ, let me say this, outside Christ, there is no grace and no salvation. Just justice, wrath. So if you're ready tonight, you've heard a message. Wrath, but love. Mercy, but justice. It's all God. That's who he is. You can't separate who he is. You just kneel before him and say, I don't understand. I love you, Lord. I know this is you, Lord. I'm not going to try and dissect you on the table of theology. I'm going to receive you in the heart of revelation. If you're ready to make that step today, you say, what do I have to do to receive? All you have to do is believe. It's a free gift. You just say, well, do you know what? I do believe. Then you have passed from darkness to life, judgment to grace. And I want to pray for you. If that's you in this room today, I want you to lift your hand right now. And I'll pray for you. Say, I'm ready. I'm ready to be saved. Lift your hand and I'll pray for you upstairs in the balcony and downstairs. I won't pray for you if you don't put your hand up. Be bold. Christ was bold on the cross when he died for you. Is there anyone who wants to respond to that tonight? I'm not going to prolong this appeal. I'll just ask one more time. All right, we all just lift your hand and I'll see you and I'll pray for you. Amen. Still in prayer. But you know, that propitiation was not just for sin. That's just the beginning. God has reversed the curse. And when he died on the cross, he died for your sicknesses. He died for curse. He died to bring healing to the whole part of you, body, soul, and spirit. And as we move into a time of ministry now for the next 15 minutes or so, we're going to pray for one another. We're going to worship the Lord, and we're going to believe that the power of the cross is going to flow into our lives in prayer. Whatever need you have tonight, don't go away without being prayed for. Stay in his presence for a few more minutes. If you need to go out when, I, when, I, when we move to worship, of course you can go. 
But don't go. Let the power of the preached gospel touch you at your point of need. Ministry team, if you could come forward. Father, we come to you. The power of your gospel. We thank you that those of us that are in Christ are not under judgment. And grace and mercy is all that we will know the rest of the days of our life. But Lord, we have prayer needs today. We have needs for our body, needs for our finances, needs for breakthrough. And in this next moment of time, as we worship and thank you for our saved souls, we pray, Lord, that you will release spiritual gifts, healing. We thank you, Lord. It's not about the person praying or the person being prayed for. It's about the anointing upon this house and the anointing on the gospel. So let your will be done and release the power of the Holy Spirit according to your gospel. Now let there be signs following in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's worship the Lord. Come forward if you need prayer. When God's not finished yet, but when you're ready to leave, of course, feel free. God bless you.